This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of difficult habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes for mental illness and potential new treatments, all of that delivered without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment, and also better informing the general public about mental illness and its treatments. This is the show for you every Wednesday night for one hour, and this is the Wednesday, July 9, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope that you enjoyed your long weekend for July 4th, this past weekend. Hope that you had a fun and happy and safe Independence Day weekend. And starting off tonight's show is an article that isn't necessarily completely related to mental health, but it relates a lot to psychiatric practice. And so I thought I would discuss it with you. It's about side effects, and it's about how patients experience side effects of their medications and the dilemma this causes in their treatment and the issues that doctors face in helping their patients manage these types of issues. And, of course, in psychiatry, while problems can be treated with therapy or medication or the combination thereof, a lot of the issues relate to medications, their effectiveness or not, and issues of side effects. So that's why I thought, even though the article itself isn't specifically devoted to mental illness, the fact that it talks a lot about side effects certainly relates a lot to psychiatry and psychiatric practice. And I can certainly relate that very well to the work that I do with my patients in my practice. And hopefully uh, some of these insights might help some of you out there who have had false starts, shall we say, with medications, meaning you tried something briefly, side effects seemed overwhelmingly uncomfortable, you stopped it right away or you've given things longer tries but struggled to find something that was comfortable or tolerable. So without further ado, the title of the article is Side Effects, Telling the Real from the Imagined. The fear of side effects prompts many patients to stop taking their medicine. Now the other reason this article caught my eye is that I remember several years ago, some research was published that found that there's a direct correlation between the degree of fear of having side effects and the extent to which people suffer from side effects from medication. As you might expect, the more people fear that they're going to have side effects of medicine, the more side effects they have. 
The long list of side effects that you hear rattled off at the end or sometimes in the middle of medication ads on TV and also that found on many websites is giving some doctors a headache. Many people often believe, research shows, that they are experiencing side effects even when they're not, ranging from minor dizziness to muscle pain and heart palpitations. That prompts some patients to stop taking their medicine, which can increase their health risk. Physicians say patient concerns about adverse effects from drugs are an issue they deal with almost every day, and I would include myself in that. Side effects are the number one reason why patients are non-compliant with their medications. Unfortunately, patients tend to look up their medication on Google or some other internet search engine, and what they find is every side effect known to man, and many patients are sensitive to that. Now, what I tell patients is that Google is not a good doctor. It cannot make informed medical treatment decisions for you. And the problem with doing an internet search, whether it's Google or any other search engine, is that more than 90% of what you find when you look up any medical treatment, uh, and this is especially the case for anything that's related to psychiatry, more than 90% is going to be skewed to the negative for a lot of different reasons. For one thing, the tens of millions of people who are taking their medicine and feeling better and functioning well have better things to do than to go on websites and forums and blogs and post negative comments about the side effects of their medicine. And again, this is especially true in psychiatry. If someone's mood is better, they're out there enjoying their lives. They're not brooding by the computer and typing a complaint. The other thing is that in psychiatry in particular, unfortunately, there are a lot of individuals and groups of individuals who have an anti-psychiatry agenda, an anti-medication bias, uh, or an anti-just medical field bias altogether. And uh, all this misinformation out there is likely to skew people's opinions. Now, according to the article, one-third to one-half of United States patients on medications for chronic illnesses don't take their medication as prescribed. And studies show reports of side effects often aren't valid. Now, the article does mention this in the context of psychiatric medications. A review of 21 randomized clinical trials for depression, published in the journal Psychiatry Research last year, found that among 3,255 patients receiving placebo treatments, about 45% reported at least one adverse effect, such as headache, dizziness, or fatigue. In a similar meta-analysis looking at pain treatment, researchers found many patients were likely to report undesirable side effects even when they were given a placebo. 
That analysis was published in, in the journal called Pain this year, reviewed 10 separate studies involving a total of about 335 patients. So much smaller sample, but still quite a high number. Now, in terms of the placebo trials for depression, 45%, almost half of patients taking a placebo, reported at least one side effect. Now, how and why is it that an inert placebo would cause a side effect? Well, it's difficult to understand and explain, but the reason is similar to how and why is it that a placebo could cause someone to feel better. It's the expectation of what may happen when you take something that leads there to be some kind of an effect, whether it's an adverse effect or a beneficial effect. But what drives that expectation? Is it simply the fact that a person enrolls in a clinical trial for a potential new treatment for depression, that they're feeling depressed and that they hope to feel better? Well, sure, that's a big part of why an unexpected beneficial effect from a placebo could occur. But the reason that people have side effects from placebos in clinical research trials has to do with the procedures that take place when patients are enrolled. Now, clinical research trials for any type of medication, not just in psychiatry, are by necessity subject to reams and reams and reams of very strict rules. Uh, in order for the trial to be legal and proper and ethical, patients have to be informed of anything and everything that may go wrong if they're taking the study drug. So side effects have to be discussed openly and therefore, uh, and in great detail and at great length. So therefore, just as there may be the hopeful anticipation that the person is taking the active study drug and therefore their depression may improve and that may lead to a placebo response in the positive, that is they feel better even though they're taking uh, an inert dummy pill. By the same token, if they're especially frightened and concerned when they read through the consent forms about potential adverse effects, then that type of patient may be more sensitive to feeling like they're having adverse effects even if they're only taking an inert placebo. And likewise, <clears throat> the fear and expectation of taking a medication based on any information they get, whether it's from the web, the TV commercial, or a doctor dutifully reporting to the patient when first prescribing the medicine what the most common side effects are, if that person is especially fearful or sensitive about those issues, then they are more likely to suffer side effects from the medication. Now, in March, there was a study in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine, eight patients, a very small number, who were taking cholesterol-lowering statin drugs who reported muscle pain were tested to determine if the symptoms resulted from the medication. Now, I don't know the details of how this was done, but the article says in none of the patients was the muscle pain due to the drug. 
and they say that similar results were found in patients taking beta blockers, a class of drugs commonly used to treat high blood pressure and other cardiovascular problems, as well as medications used to treat migraine, fibromyalgia, and other conditions. One expert for the article was quoted as saying, when patients take drugs, they do attribute all the effects they feel to the drug rather than to their health, the environment, the weather, or the beer they had the last night, and many other factors that could contribute. But uh, I always say, no matter what, it's always possible that any patient may have any side effect from any medication. You can never say it's not possible. All right, well, let's continue this discussion of side effects after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that allergy season in Georgia is year-round? Beginning in July through November, ragweed is the predominant pollen. But February through May, tree pollen causes allergy symptoms. Grass pollen occurs from mid-May through the beginning of July. If you suffer from daily nasal congestion, sneezing, runny nose, headache ear clogging or popping or a chronic cough these symptoms may be due to allergy and not infection you should also think of allergies if there is no fever chills or colored mucus treatment should include nasal salt water sprays over the counter or antihistamines that do not cause drowsiness if you have persistent headaches a decrease in your sense of smell or nosebleeds you should see an ear nose and throat physician please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for medicine on call This is Dr. Elena George. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and all the latest mental health-related news. 
And the topic at the moment, medication side effects, telling the real from the imagined. Now, to test a perceived side effect, many doctors instruct the patient to stop the drug for a week or two to see if the symptoms they think are side effects from it go away. Then they resume the drug. If the symptoms come back, doctors then often try to find a different medication. Side effects like rashes or fevers are relatively easy for a doctor to assess. It's the subjective ones like aches and fatigue that are harder to determine if they're caused by a medication or by something else. Now, I will add here that sometimes if someone has a side effect unexpectedly right away, very, very early on in taking medication or from an extremely low dose, it may be that stopping it, having a a rediscussion, as it were, about the medication and the the likely benefits. I say rediscussion because ideally that discussion should have already taken place when the medication was first prescribed. But um, some reassurance, uh, some calming, uh, and some encouraging and reminding about the benefits of the medication may enable the patient to try it again and have a better go at it the second time. For difficult to evaluate symptoms that may be side effects or not, it is potentially helpful to ask patients to write in a journal how they feel every day for a week or two and to rank the severity of the symptoms on a scale from 1 to 10. And then maybe they can continue to keep the journal after stopping the medication to see if symptoms improve. Sometimes it is pretty clear if a side effect is imagined. Some patients, for instance, report a side effect after only one dose of a medication that is known to take several days to cause symptoms. Another clue, when a person reports having side effects with three different drugs, that typically cause symptoms in less than 1% of patients. Well, I have to say that, again, I take issue with that in, in terms of uh, the, the claim the author of the article makes. Again, um, no matter how rare or bizarre or uh, unusual it might seem, anyone can have any side effect from any medication. Uh, one expert for the article said they try to educate patients about the balance between the benefits and risks of taking certain drugs and also to remind the patient what the risks are of not being treated and what the potential complications of that may be. But usually empowering the patient to feel like they're in control can help people when they refuse to take a drug for fear of having side effects. Uh, I find that starting a patient on a very low dose and increasing it slowly is often beneficial when people are concerned about side effects or they're just in general somewhat apprehensive about the idea of taking medication. But I'll also be very careful to tell someone that uh, I'm taking an extra careful, gentle approach. We'll go slow to minimize initial side effects and to make it easier for their body to adjust to being on the medication. But that slow, careful approach does come at a price when it comes to psychiatric medications because they rarely start showing benefits before at least 10 days to two weeks and in some cases longer. So while a 
start low and go slow with medicine approach may minimize side effects and make it more comfortable. A person may take longer to feel better. Uh, but I find that the vast majority of patients are more comfortable with that. However, if there are veteran patients, I mean, those who have been on medications before and don't feel particularly sensitive to side effects, then the standard initial dosing or sometimes even a more aggressive approach would be acceptable for that type of patient. Cardiologists say fear of side effects makes it difficult to convince some heart patients to start on statins. It's very well known that if someone's had a heart attack, if they weren't already taking a statin before, they need to start on one to prevent the next heart attack. But internet chat rooms are filled with talk about possible side effects of statins, such as myalgia, which is muscle pain, and cognitive dysfunction, also known as brain fog. And uh, one expert for the article was quoted as saying, this can be critically important because we have patients for whom statins have documented life-saving benefits. Well, that's true. Uh, but again, uh, I always try the approach that uh, to try not to make the cure worse than the disease. Uh, in other words, if one drug or more doesn't work, keep trying to find something that is a better fit between benefits and minimizing the side effects. The dilemma for a physician is knowing how to approach the topic with patients. If we describe too many possible side effects, that may be counterproductive because patients might want to stop taking the drug the first time they feel something. And again, the more <clears throat> concerned and anxious and fearful they are about the side effects we know, the more likely they are to suffer them. It's incumbent upon we physicians always to tell patients about potential side effects, but if it is a drug that could save someone's life, uh, perhaps it is not so good an idea to just list myriad negative symptoms. And in fact, what I will usually do is come right out and tell someone, look, I'll tell you what may happen. This is what's common for people who take this medicine, and this is when it may start. This is when you can expect it to start going away, and this is how you can minimize it. And uh, That advice may include things like taking it after meals, take it certain times of day, things like that. But again, I think it's, it's good that there's a lot of discussion about this issue, and I think for me, the most important take-home point is you know, not to do broad internet searches. Uh, talk to your doctor when a medication is prescribed about what the most common side effects are and ask them, okay, what are the most common side effects? In other words, what should I reasonably expect to be dealing with and what should I try to just fight my way through until... It eventually goes away, and how long might that take? And what side effects should I call you about if I'm suffering them? And what side effects should I just go right to the emergency room if I'm suffering? And I think that's the best way to approach an informed, educated discussion of medication side effects with your doctor. In fact, if I had my way, the pamphlets that you get 
at the pharmacy when you pick up your medication would be revised. Of course, you know, the content and format of the pamphlets is mandated by the government, the Food and Drug Administration, but I think they'd be much more helpful and more informative and less scary if they were formatted just like I was uh, sort of outlining the d discussion with the doctor. Okay, first on that pamphlet, this is what are the most common side effects. This is what you should just try to fight your way through. And these are the ones that you should call your doctor about. And these are the ones that you should go to the emergency room right away. And then if you want to have the exhaustive list that may or may not relate to the drug whatsoever, put that on the inside of the pamphlet. But all that basic information should be right on the cover. Well, you know, again, that's uh, unfortunately just a fantasy for me. Um, so instead, I try to format it that way for myself in discussing things with my patients. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today, came across several articles having to do with children's mental health issues. Uh, several, a couple on autism, one on ADHD. So those of you interested in those topics, stay tuned. But first, this article is about kids with tight schedules who may lose out. And a new study done on this issue. And just to give you an example, I'll cite something uh, from my, my own personal life that I can tell you about. <clears throat> and that I thought of it immediately when I saw this article that I'm about to go over with you. I have a very old and dear friend from medical school. And several years ago, when his daughter was much, much younger, we were talking on the phone and he was telling me how she was doing. And she was in like elementary school, a young girl. And she's telling me about all her activities uh, in no particular order. Ballet, violin lessons, uh, Girl Scouts, uh sports, uh, soccer, maybe karate, what have you, and just going on and on like this. And I thought to myself, my goodness, when does she just have some open free time to just be a kid between all that and school? And he admitted that he wasn't sure, so he, he called out to his wife, and I could hear him talking to her on the phone. He calls out to her and say, uh, when when does she not doing anything and just being a kid. And I could hear his wife in the background saying, uh, well, there's Tuesdays from 5 to 6, and then uh, Saturdays from uh, 12 to 1. And I thought to myself, she wasn't kidding. She's serious. And I said, you know, there's got to be something wrong with that. I'm all for kids having lots of varied activities and full enriched lives but sometimes it's just too much and kids need free time to just be kids well so here's this article to go over that issue which approach for parenting is best the tiger mom or the free range well this new study suggests that kids definitely may need a little more latitude with their free time instead of having their days packed with lessons, sports, and structured activities. 
Turns out, the more time kids had in less structured activities, the more self-directed they were, and also the reverse was true. The more time they spent in structured activities, the less able they were to use executive function. Now, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll go over what exactly is meant by executive function, and we'll go over the details of the researchers' findings. And who knows? Maybe that potentially might influence you to ease up on your busy kids' schedule. We'll have that and more after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Come on. Follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Snipples.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your host with all the latest mental health related news. And the topic is what happens when kids are over scheduled? You know what I'm talking about. Parents who have their kids constantly going to some sort of sporting activity and uh, some kind of lessons and, of course, you know, extra tutoring and things like that. And the study that we're talking about shows that the kids who are over-structured, spend too much time in these structured activities, are less able to use executive function, which executive function includes a broad range of thinking skills that include planning, problem-solving, making decisions, and regulating thoughts and actions. You don't have a chance to develop those skills if you're in structured activities and classes all the time. Having free, unstructured time helps to develop, again, thinking skills, which include planning, problem-solving, decision-making, regulating thoughts and actions. 
Those are called executive functions. Now, it's more and more common for parents to schedule their children in a wide range of activities, primarily to keep them busy and engaged or to help ensure they maintain a competitive edge in sports or academics. It's the way the world is going. But the study encourages parents to offer children a balance between some structured time where they can learn a specific skill and some free time. This is not the first study to question the value of overly involved parenting where it specifically concerns overscheduling the kids. Research published last year in the journal Parenting, Science and Practice by a different group of researchers found that preschoolers with mothers who tried to direct their play were less happy than were children with parents who didn't interfere. The new study, which was published recently in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, was an effort to determine whether a lifestyle of scheduled, structured activities affects the way a child's brain develops. Researchers asked the parents of 70 kids who were six years old to record their children's daily activities for a week. The team then used time-use classification methods to record the degree to which the children's time was committed to structured or non-structured activities. For example, structured activities included lessons, sports, and chores, while non-structured activities included such things as free play and reading. The children were assessed for self-directed function with a test that measures how well children go about reaching a goal. The children were asked to name as many animals as they could in a minute. Those who organized their answers into groups like zoo animals, marine mammals, farm animals, tended to be able to name more, which is considered a sign of greater executive function. Researchers also weighed other factors, such as a child's vocabulary, the family's household income, gender, and culture in analysis of the data. And they focused on six-year-olds because children at that age are more likely to have some unstructured activities. Now, the lead author was quoted in the article as admitting to there being some limitations to the study. They were able to show an association between the degree of structure in a child's lifestyle and the development of executive function, but they could not say whether the way children spend their time predicts the degree of executive function or whether it might be the other way around. And the study cannot prove a cause and effect link it only shows an association. It's possible the categories the researchers used may have underestimated or overestimated the amount of structure associated with activities. And 70 kids is certainly a very small sample size. It seems logical that having less structured time would allow kids to enhance their executive function. 
there is a certain pressure to perform in all these activities. And that stress impedes the development of executive function. There definitely could be a benefit to having more free time. Kids may be developing broader life skills that could be really important for them, especially as they get increasingly independent. The researchers' findings at least suggest it may be okay if the kids have some time when they're obviously not working towards some goal. All right. Well, so give that some thought, parents. Uh, the next time you decide to sign your kid up for another structured activity. All right. Now, uh, next, we are going to talk about some news about autism. And, you know, while this isn't going to lead to any breakthroughs or treatments, anytime in the near future, it's still a milestone in... Uh, on the long road to somehow finding a way uh, to deal with this illness. Scientists say they have found a gene that may be responsible for autism. Decades-long search for a possible cause of autism has finally come to some fruition, with scientists discovering that mutation in a specific gene called CHD8, causes a subtype of autism. The discovery of this gene may have great potential for developing autism-specific interventions. People who carry the mutated variant of the CHD8 gene have a very strong likelihood of having autism marked by a similar cluster of symptoms including gastrointestinal disorders, a larger head, and wide-set eyes. The results of the study, which was carried out in collaboration with 13 institutions around the world, were published in Cell magazine under the title Disruptive CHD8 Mutations Define a Subtype of Autism in Early Development. The researchers studied over 6,000 children with autism spectrum disorder and found that 15 of them had a CHD8 mutation. Now, let's pause here for a moment and reflect on the fact that that is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the study. 15 out of actually 6,176 kids. Uh, so that's really not that much. So you might reasonably ask, well, why is that such a breakthrough if only such a tiny, tiny fraction of the kids studied had this gene? Well, I agree that that may not sound like much to go by, but up until now, it's more than scientists have. Uh, really, again, there's there's just no idea what exactly is the underlying cause for autism, and unfortunately there's so many, many mistaken misconceptions about the causes of autism, the worst, most egregiously false uh, myth about autism is that it's caused by childhood vaccines, 
And this has been uh, debunked and disproven over and over and over again, and yet uh, the misbelief persists. Now, getting back to the study about this particular gene mutation, the kids, the 15 kids who had this gene mutation had distinct facial characteristics, like I was saying, larger head size, wide-set eyes, they had gastrointestinal problems, and they had sleep disturbances. Now, the scientists had a very interesting way to test out the results of this mutation. They actually worked at scientists, uh, worked with scientists at Duke who used zebrafish to model several human diseases. Now, don't ask me exactly how this works, but they can find the same gene in these zebrafish, cause the same mutation in the gene in fish embryos, and lo and behold, the fish have increased head size, wide-set eyes, and gastrointestinal problems. Well, you know, I, I know that we have nothing in common with fish, uh, but apparently the genome in any creature that has DNA has quite a bit more in common than we think. And what differentiates all the different types of creatures in the world is actually a pretty small portion of the DNA. Now, this is the first time researchers have shown a definitive cause of autism due to a specific genetic mutation. Now, there is another genetic mutation in the fragile X gene that is most commonly associated with a certain type of autism, and it is characterized mainly by developmental and intellectual disorders. And with only a handful of cases identified so far, the mutations in CHD8 are definitely rare, but identifying a specific subtype of autism will greatly help in developing specifically designed treatments. Treatments for autism have not achieved significant breakthroughs due to the very widely varied nature of the condition, and we'll be talking about treatments in the next uh, segment, there are only a few known causes of autism and it may be caused by mutations to any of the countless genes in the human body. Some of the known genetic events related to autism are chromosomal rearrangements or what are called copy number variation where one or more sections of the DNA are either copied or deleted. But no one rearrangement affects more than 1% of all autism cases. So it's very difficult to nail down, well, this one genetic variation causes autism. Scientists have not been able to definitively prove the association between these copy number events and autism. The other known event is mutation in the DNA that alters the function or production of specific proteins, which may lead to autism. Well, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll finish up our thoughts on this particular gene mutation, and then we'll have more about autism, some about ADHD. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200, or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your host with all the mental health-related news, talking about a breakthrough in a small way, one gene mutation responsible for one subtype of autism, The discovery of this CHD8 mutation as a clear link to autism can now be used as a stepping stone to uncover several other genetic issues related to autism. Diagnosis can then be based on these underlying conditions rather than on behavior alone. Most of all, it can be used to develop drugs for specific subtypes of autism. So to be certain, this is not a huge breakthrough, seeing as how it applies to only a very small number of kids with autism, and it certainly is not going to lead to any treatments directly. But again, uh, it is a significant milestone along the journey toward eventually finding useful treatments. Now, for the time being, we don't have specific treatments for autism. And as the next article that we're going to talk about demonstrates, instead of there being specific treatments for the symptoms of autism, there are just medications that are used for other illnesses that are adapted to try to alleviate the problems that kids with autism have. This will become clear as we go through this article. Now, it says, can medication help with your child's autism? Let's see what, uh, what the verdict is on that. Um, Many parents of children with autism have uttered the following words when faced with challenging symptoms their kids have. I'm at my wit's end. 
The reason is that some children are prone to symptoms like self-injury or even aggression toward others. Some children are likely to wander off, so parents have to watch them 24-7. Still others suffer from attention deficits that keep them from developing socially and academically. Behavioral intervention is the first line of treatment, let's be clear. But when it's not enough, doctors do talk to parents about medication. Anxious parents rightly have concerns about medications. To ease that worry, it's important to learn what they can and can't do for these children. As a parent, how does one know when it's time to consider medication for your child? Often, uncontrolled aggression is the tipping point. We always start with safety, says Vina Ahuja, MD, pediatric psychiatrist, who works at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. That includes concern for a child's safety or a sibling's safety or peers at school. Safety is a big trigger to consider starting medications. It's not the only trigger, though. For example, a teacher may tell parents a child is not progressing at school because of outbursts or wandering off. Issues such as mood disorders, a lack of attention, or high anxiety get in the way of development. The decision to use medication comes down to function. Is the child's ability to function impaired? Have other efforts failed to control symptoms? After a referral to a psychiatrist, collaboration is the key. Psychologists want to know how treatment is going, and psychiatrists want to know if medication is helping improve therapy outcomes. To be effective, the two must work together. Dr. Huja says, I stress to parents that medication is not the solution to a problem. It's a way to help make therapy more effective. Sometimes a child can't progress any further without medications to calm them down or to make them safer. Psychiatrists have a few options at their disposal depending on the symptoms. Aggression and self-injury, again, these symptoms are major concerns. Fortunately, there are two drugs that treat them. These are the only two drugs approved by the Food and Drug Administration for treating autism symptoms. They are Risperidone, the generic for Risperdal, and Aripiprazole, the chemical name for Abilify. They're known as atypical antipsychotics. And Dr. Ahuja notes, out of all the medications used in treating symptoms associated with autism, these have the most evidence behind them. I will also add that they also have some very, very severe side effects, the worst of which are weight gain and potentially increasing the risk for the development of diabetes. And then there is hyperactivity and impulsivity, which can include grabbing, touching, and fidgeting. These symptoms can get in the way of everyday learning and interaction. Doctors often use the drugs clonidine and guanfacine, which are known as alpha-2 adrenergic agonists, to treat these symptoms. In some cases, they may improve sleep, 
and ease aggression as well. <clears throat> These are recognizable as medications that are sometimes used to treat attention deficit and hyperactivity. These kids can also have depression, anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive-like behavior. Many children with autism have these other mental concerns. Certain antidepressants, mainly the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like Prozac, Paxil, Luvox, Celexa, Lexapro, and Zoloft, often help treat these symptoms, including the repetitive or inflexible behavior. Doctors may use anti-anxiety medications too, but the SSRIs tend to have fewer side effects. And again, Dr. Huja says, we see kids improve with the right medication. It can help take away that overwhelming desire to control everything around them. And you can easily see how that would greatly improve parents' quality of life as well. And then there are the Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder Symptoms, or ADHD Symptoms, there is a lot of crossover between autism and ADHD. Uh, it is common for kids with autism to also have deficits of attention. Because of this, treatment with typical ADHD medications, such as Ritalin and Adderall, is common. Both getting the right medication at the correct dose is critical, and monitoring for side effects is critical. As a parent, it's good to ask questions and be sure you're comfortable with any prescription. Dr. Ahuja says we never force medications on parents or their children. We just want them to know they have options. We want them to know when they're at their wit's end that a combined approach to treatment might help their child improve. I definitely don't want you to come away with the impression that this type of treatment is only available at the prestigious Cleveland Clinic. If you go to see a, a child psychiatrist in your community, I'm quite confident that as long as they have the appropriate experience and are board certified, they would have the experience at being able to uh, use these medications to help your child. Next, we're going to talk about kids with ADHD having been found to be more likely to abuse drugs in uh, a new study. They found that kids with ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are more than twice as likely to try and abuse drugs. But it's important to state that does not implicate the medications that are prescribed to treat ADHD. And by the way, ADHD is the most common childhood disorder in the United States. 8% of all kids in the U.S., are diagnosed with it. One of the main points of the study is that treating ADHD with both behavioral techniques and medications seems to decrease the risk of substance abuse. Although the stimulants used to treat ADHD can be addictive when people without ADHD take them, there is no evidence that using them increases the risk of substance abuse. It's inherent in having ADHD that there's a risk of substance abuse it's part of the whole impulsivity of the disorder now medications like amphetamines such as Adderall or Dexedrine or Vyvanse or methylphenidates like Ritalin, Concerta, Metadate or Focalin uh, can sometimes be misused 
As much as 23% of school-aged kids are approached to sell, buy, or trade their ADHD medications. And college campuses are rife with um, misuse of these medications for the sake of improving grades or being able to study all night. The analysis of the existing medical literature on this issue was published on June the 30th and is in the July print issue of the journal Pediatrics. Although the association between ADHD and the risk of substance abuse is known, it's important to say it is regardless of medication. And the reasons for the increased risk, again, aren't specified. Uh, again, we speculate that it's part of just the general impulsivity that is inherent in ADHD. Uh, ADHD kids are more likely to struggle in school and may turn to drugs to escape anxiety about their difficulties or maybe trying to self-medicate their inability to gain control over their thoughts. And it's important to mention as well that while the medications used to treat ADHD in and of themselves have the potential for abuse, the vast majority of children with ADHD do not develop a substance abuse problem. And there have been many, many studies that show that when kids with ADHD are prescribed these medications, they are less likely to go on to have substance abuse problems than untreated kids are. Now, it's also possible that having problems in school may put these kids with ADHD in touch with others who also are having problems and in themselves are at risk for alcohol and drug use. And again, ADHD kids are impulsive and uh, they're going to be vulnerable to kind of joining in with kids who um, have these bad habits. Certainly, parents need to be aware that the medications prescribed for ADHD have the potential for abuse, uh, to be careful and monitor how their kids take their medications and uh, make sure they're not tempted to sell them or share them with anyone else. But they also have to be aware of the symptoms of substance abuse and to be able to distinguish those from ADHD. Again, I think the most important take-home points for this is that when researchers talk about increased risk of substance abuse in ADHD, they're just talking about the illness itself. They're not talking about the risks of the medications. And again, most research has shown that the medications actually reduce the risk of substance abuse. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together next week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.